Okay, let's return to the Epistle of Romans. Entering a new section this morning, Romans chapter 12. When you get there, if you're able, if you'll stand, we'll just read two verses together this morning. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And Father, what a privilege it is to claim the name Christian. Lord, a title that really we can't even take for ourselves. It's one that in Your grace You give to us. Or we have to concede painfully there's nothing good in us. There's no earthly reason why You should love us, yet we glory in the fact that You do. Father, help us as we examine these words this morning. Not just to technically break them apart, but to hear the spirit of what's being said. I pray you'd help us to serve you out of hearts full of joy, with proper zeal and with the right motivations. And be exalted in our sight, Lord. Open our eyes to behold you more fully, so that we may serve more joyfully. In Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> of course, last time we finished Romans chapter 11, which, and I called it at the time a doxology of praise. I don't know that it was written expressly to be a song specifically, but it certainly comes across that way. Doxology just means a song of praise. It just sort of spontaneously erupts from the soul of Paul. And as he's viewing the incomprehensible wisdom and majesty of God's timing and ways of bringing not just individuals, but entire people groups, entire nations into covenant relationship with himself. And uh, time and again, mankind's opinions and his predictions have been laid in the dust and proven absolutely false. I mean, if you look at a panorama of how God has brought salvation to the nations of the world, in most cases, it was through colossal failure. It was through ways that you and I would have never thought it would work. In fact, in many respects, it's been the greatest failures of humanity always that have been turned around and used to open the doorway of God's infinite blessing. Some of you, if you had time, you could stand up and talk this morning. And if you remember what you used to be, you can probably pinpoint how many times God overrode your stubbornness. How many times when you felt like you were running from God with all your might, you found you ran right into Him. I used to always be, I don't know if amused is the right word, but I'm dealing with the dear men in the prison ministry. I don't know how many times one of them would sit there, sort of dumbfounded, and he would relate his story and he would say, you know, it's strange. I was, I was out there and, and usually it was a grandma or an uncle or somebody praying for him. There was some Christian influence. Or, and he decided he wasn't going to hear it. He's going to have his liquor. He's going to smoke his drugs. He's going to run from God. He's not going to be in church. He doesn't want to hear it. And... And so he ran, and he ran, and he ran, and lo and behold, he ends up arrested. And he spends a few days in prison, sort of coming out of the stupor. And all of a sudden, somebody comes by and says, Hey, now, why don't you come over to the chapel? And so now here he sits, hearing far more in those two hours of chapel, far more pointed discussion regarding his soul than he would hear in a church service. And he really couldn't explain why. How he went from running from God to sitting here listening... He couldn't tell. But isn't it true God's done that with us? How many of you just up and chose to follow God? 
without him putting obstacles up and bringing the right people to block your ways. I could look at times in my former life, I couldn't explain it at the time. But now I look back and I couldn't explain why I couldn't enjoy my sin more. And now I look back and I know what it was. It was divine restraint. It was God keeping me from going further into that excess. Now, I mentioned when we were in Romans 8, it's widely regarded as the summit of Romans. In fact, one commentator made the statement, if Romans is a diamond, then Romans 8 is a sparkling point of the jewel. Now, I completely agree with that when it comes to victoriously standing against the wiles of the devil, when it comes to fighting our own sin nature, when it comes to having a militant, confident outlook on the battles we face, standing upon the grace of God. That definitely is the high point in that respect. But I think it's also fitting to view the end of Romans 11, where we were last week as sort of a summit. And when it comes to standing in reverent fear and admiration, when it comes to catching fleeting glimpses of the high and lofty purposes of God through the ages, it's like God standing on top of the mountain, that passage saying, I'm God, and there is none else. We saw there the wisdom and knowledge of God. It's like these fathomless depths full of jewels. His judgments are unsearchable. What He's doing, why He's doing it, how He's doing it, what He's doing. Now His ways are past finding out. They're mysterious. As high as the heavens are above the earth. None can comprehend His mind fully, not even in eternity. Nobody is fit to be His counselor. And then of course, of Him, through Him, to Him are all things. All created things came out from Him. They're sustained by Him and they're heading back to Him at the last. I think it's a good spiritual barometer to ask yourself sometimes. When was the last time your heart honestly broke out in spontaneous praise to God for who He is? Not just what He's given you. When was the last time you were able to thank God that He doesn't make sense? When was the last time you were able to thank God that His ways are past finding out? When was the last time you were able to thank God He's not going to give you answers in some areas? That ought to make us worship Him. Because He is incomprehensible. When was the last time you marveled at the very one infinite one who condescended into this wicked world he has to condescend to even accept praise from the angels you ever think about it that way god has to lower himself to even hear praise from an angel and yet the fruit of your lips can be accepted as praise and please him how astounding is that But now we're sort of leaving that part behind. We're coming down from this lofty summit down into the plains of practicality, if you want to think about it that way. Now, where we live geographically, we can kind of understand that. People come from the west. They go over the majestic rocky mountains that everybody in the east always wants to see, right? And uh, they cross those mountains and they start to descend. And you get a couple hours east of here. What's the scenery like? It's so flat you can see the Statue of Liberty just about, right? You see, the scenery becomes a little more uninteresting, a little more mundane, right? Sometimes you want to go back to the, to the lofty peaks. Well, you see, it's down where the rubber meets the road that we actually live the Christian life. Now, it's true. The Bible does say, if you are a Christian here this morning, your life is, present tense, hid with Christ and God. You are, present tense, seated in the heavenlies right now. Uh, you have been translated into the kingdom of His dear Son. All of that's true of you if you belong to Christ. But, it's like Moses had to come down from the mount, leave the thick cloud, descend from Sinai. All of us are called to labor in the wilderness for a time on a dying planet, grappling with the heartbreaking realities that come with it. True Christianity, think about this, if the book of Romans ended with chapter 11, period, What that would be insinuating is that true Christianity was all head and no heart. Or just the opposite, maybe all heart and no head. 
True Christianity is both supernatural and ordinary. It's both theological and intensely practical. It's reverent praise within the heart and mind and calluses on the hands. Remember the question James asked when he was talking about faith without works being dead? And he gives a hypothetical situation. If a brother or sister come to you and uh, they're destitute, they're naked, they don't have daily food, and one of you saying to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled. Notwithstanding, you give them not those things which are needful to the body. And what does he ask? What doth it profit? See, Christianity is not just ivory tower theology and holy huddles hiding on a Sunday morning. Christianity goes outside these walls and is practically helpful to the world, primarily through the preaching of the gospel, but through other means as well. I mean, what does the New Testament say about good works frequently? It has a great deal to say about it in the right place. Now, these two verses we just read really form the gateway into the application section of this epistle. Not that there hasn't been any application, there has been, but basically from here forward, the next five chapters in Romans, it's like the question is, in response to these lofty truths, what are you going to do about it now? That's the emphasis of the rest of the book. Those of you who are here in the introduction, remember the, what, what do the epistles do? It's theology... Before practicality. That's the constant theme. You have to have the right theological perspective before you can serve the right way and for the right reasons. Romans is no different. Many of the other epistles do the same thing. And I mean, that's true dealing with separation from evil, that's true dealing with uh, the use of spiritual gifts, our uh, responsibility in relation to governmental authority, with matters of Christian liberty. And things the Bible doesn't specifically uh, spell out, properly defined. In dealing with the watching world outside, and our attitudes and treatments of one another, all those things come back to those two verses that we just read and have to be understood sort of through those. I think it's vital to notice the tone in which this whole section begins. Look at verse 1. First of all, you see the word therefore. What's therefore talking about? We've all heard the cliche when you see therefore in the Bible, see what it's there for. What he's doing, he's calling to mind everything that's been discussed before. In other words, we've had 11 entire chapters. Paul didn't write them as chapters, but we had 11 entire chapters of theology. And then we close with this tremendous doxology of praise to God the Father, which is intended to put us all in the dust in reverent admiration. And he's saying now, because of that, Let's get down to brass tacks with our practical life. Notice though, it's not a command. He says, I beseech you. You The word beseech means to beg. I implore you. As strongly as I can muster, I'm asking you, to do this. That's the tone in which he's speaking. I mean, the whole line of reasoning here is not threats of discipline and judgment. It's not merely some list of rules. Now, it's not to say there's no imperatives or commands in the Christian life. They are. But those are the training wheels of why we should obey the Lord. In other words, Paul's saying, because he has this heart that desires God's glory, And because He wants heaps of blessings stacked on every single one of His people, what He's begging you and I to do is to have an eternal mindset regarding our ownership of ourself. You see, that's where this whole discussion on the practical Christian life begins. Who owns you? Not just in standing, but in actual state. Who is your master? And why? And this is brought up before any of these other practical areas. I mentioned the Moravians recently, and I said they had their doctrinal flaws, and they did. I find the group rather fascinating. In fact, they're the ones George Whitfield made the comment in the 1700s that their superstructure is too large for their foundation. What he was saying is they weren't doctrinally sound enough to support the entity they built. Now, that was a, that was a true observation, but... 
these people were also responsible for arguably the most powerful mission movement in modern history. It really is quite a fascinating story. It was in the 1700s that just legions of these guys and ladies went all across the globe. And keep in mind, this came out of a mindset of prevailing hyper-Calvinism. Somebody even mentioned going to the heathen tribes and they were essentially told, sit down, be quiet. When God wants to convert the heathen, He'll do it without your help or mine. In fact, one famous missionary you heard of was told exactly that. And so these guys said, we're called to preach the Gospel. We're going. And a lot of them would pack their belongings in a coffin. They weren't planning to come back. But in the midst of that movement, there's two young men that heard of an island. It's in today the, the Virgin, U.S. Virgin Islands, St. Thomas. Now, it was no vacation paradise back then. There was this atheist British landowner that had thousands of slaves on the island and he hated God and he wanted nobody to preach there. And these guys heard about the story. They heard about uh, this island and, and they determined we're going. And in fact, they were willing to sell themselves as slaves and use the money as passage to go over to that island and preach as fellow slaves. And as the story goes, that they stood there arm linked in arm as a ship was sailing away and people were actually asking them not to go and the one of them yelled out across the water, may the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. Now, sadly, that story has been embellished over the years. Typically, if you read that, they'll say, oh, and they were never heard from again. That's actually not true. What happened is they were stopped from selling themselves as slaves at all. They never had to. But they did get to the island. They were able to preach to these guys through other means. They were there a few years, went back to Germany. But what that did is open a doorway. Other missionaries followed in their steps. All over those islands, churches were established. And by the time other missionaries showed up, they had already baptized 13,000 converts on those islands. Was their theology a little off? Yes. Were these young men perfect in their thinking? No. But here's what they did understand. That they were bought with a price and that He was worthy to serve. They had that one right. That's quite a statement they sailed away with. It wasn't that God's commanded me to go there for a half to or I'll get beaten. It was Jesus is worthy of those for whom He died. And I'm going to help put more jewels in His crown. You see the difference in the motivation? No, none of you are going to follow that exact example. Heroics are one thing. I like to ask husbands sometimes. So I'd die for my wife. Great. Will you live for Christ before for the next 60 years? Sometimes dying is easy. You remember what Peter said? Lord, I would die for you. And I think he would have. He pulled out his sword. He was expecting a sword fight and the shedding of blood. But you know what Peter hadn't learned? He was willing to die, but he wasn't willing to live for him yet. He wasn't willing to bear testimony before this hostile crowd. It wasn't a young damsel holding a sword. It was a young lady standing by the fire. Are you one of His disciples? Uh Uh-uh. Nope. God's probably not going to require heroics for most of us. Most of you are not going to spill your blood on a chopping block or be martyred in some other way. But, we are called to make some decisions regarding who owns us. Quickly, we're going to look at six different, kind of a six-fold description of this self-sacrificing attitude towards the Lord that redeemed us. Now look at number one. What's the reason for the sacrifice? Alright, because of what I said, Paul's saying, I'm begging you by the mercies of God. The word by there means for or because of. He's saying, I'm begging you because of the mercies of God. To lay yourselves down. I mean, of all the attributes of God you'd picture there as a motivation of service, sometimes I think it comes across as too much of a rod of iron. I beseech you by the holiness of God who can open the earth and swallow you alive. I beseech you by the wrath of God that He's going to punish you to no end if you don't do what He says. I'm begging you because of the mercy. God. You remember 1132? Back towards the end of the last chapter. The same sort of thing is said. God hath included them all in unbelief. Why? That He might have mercy upon all. 
And Titus 3.5 says we're saved according to this mercy. And we're to serve according to this mercy. I mean, think about it in your own mind. What are the motivations for avoiding sin? Think of your own thought processes for a minute. A particular temptation comes up. You know you're not supposed to do it. How does the thought process go? Most of the time, I would wager it's something negative, like if I do that, God's going to punish me severely. If I do that, everybody's going to find out about it. Now, that may be true. That is a deterrent. But here's my point. You know what a higher motivation is? My king is worthy of me not doing that. Oh, my soul, think what great things he's done for you. And if he's pursued me to those depths to drag me out, how can I do that evil to him? How can I grieve his heart like that? You see, you not sinning is like an offering laid down that's well sacrificing before him that he's worthy of. And that, may I say, is a far higher motivation than worrying about the spank stick flying out of the skies. That's being motivated by mercy. Revelation 1.5 Unto Him that loved us and washed us from our sins in His own blood. There's a thing to say when you choose not to sin. Unto Him that loved me and washed me from my sins in His own blood. Discipline is a deterrent, but discipline alone cannot produce supernatural sacrifice. Some of you have been reading through the book of Exodus. One thing that struck me this week as I was thinking about Exodus 20 through 24 and picturing this awful scene at Sinai in connection with here in Romans 12, I was thinking it's very interesting. What they saw, the terrifying picture, I mean, they were scared out of their wits. Anyone who touched the mountain would die. You would think in your humanity seeing that spectacle would make you never sin again. But you see, the theatrics don't have the power to do so. But then we come here where the humble apostles begging you based on the mercy of God. And generations of saints have found the power to lay themselves down in living sacrifice in ways that Old Testament Jews could not do because of the fearful things that they saw. Discipline's a motivation, all right, but not a high enough one. Not near high enough. It's because... He is worthy. Okay, number two, it's a voluntary sacrifice. He says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, that ye present your bodies. The word present means to set aside or to yield. Someone says, well, doesn't God have the power to take, to threaten, to destroy? God is not interested in having robots. There will not be a single creature in heaven that for their part didn't choose to be there. Now granted, back of it all was God. But even angels had a choice. No angel is even forced to be there. They had to choose. Salvation is pictured as an ultimatum from heaven. God commands all men everywhere to repent. But discipleship, walking near to Christ, is pictured as voluntary. Think about this for a minute. Do you want to live on a low spiritual plane? Do you want to pine away the only chance you have on this short planet to give glory to God in a sin-cursed world and stand for your King? Do you want to forfeit eternal rewards? Do you want to miss out on depths of rapturous fellowship with your Maker? Here's the rub. It will grieve Him, but He will let you. God's not going to force you into close fellowship with Him. It's a choice you have to make. Now, the precise lines of where all this goes, does discipline happen? Yes. Are there points God won't let us go past? Yes. But He's not going to force somebody to walk that closely to Him. They have to decide He's worth it. And if you and I miss out on that, He'll let us. He'll let us. 
I remember a question came up in my mind years ago that I wrestled with. I was reading through the Old Testament and the concept. Remember, there's, there's the offerings that were commanded. Uh, and likewise, there's things in the Christian life that are commanded. Okay? Uh, but there were also, remember, there were free will offerings in the Old Testament. <laughs> there were things that God gave uh, the principles about, but He didn't say you have to do it. You could do it. You could offer these as a free will offering knowing I'm not giving this because God commands it. I'm giving this because I want to. And I remember asking the question years ago, are there things in the Christian life like that? Are there things God wants me to do but doesn't command me to do and it's not sin not to do them? I believe the answer to that is yes, there are some things like that. There are some free will offerings in the New Testament. How many of you are plagued with guilt over your prayer life? Well, I, you pray for 45 minutes and there's the devil saying you should have prayed for an hour. You pray for an hour and there's, and there's the flesh saying, yeah, but you weren't fervent enough. Your mind wandered. God doesn't tell you exactly how much time you spend in prayer. Think about this. Start thinking of your prayer as a free will offering to God. I'm going to spend this time in communion with Him because I want to. Not because I'm going to be cursed. Because I want His blessing. I want His fellowship. I want His nearness. I want to be made holy like Christ. Fasting is one of those. You know, fasting is not commanded in the New Testament. It's commended. It's a free will offering. That's why we don't stand up as a church and legislate fasting. But people can do it because they want to. Alright, third, it's a complete sacrifice. But what exactly is he asking for? He says, present your bodies. Now, uh, that of course refers to your complete being. Not just your physical. Your thoughts, your motivations, your reasoning process, your joys, your sorrows. You remember in Leviticus... All the Old Testament sacrifices are given there. And of course, all of them are a a type of Christ. But there was the burnt offering that was entirely consumed. It pictured Christ's whole devotion to God the Father. Well, that's the sacrifice that's alluded to here. But here's the point. When it comes to deciding He owns us, we don't pick and choose what we want to give up. God doesn't fax you a questionnaire. Now here, go ahead and categorize these things and you tell me what you want to keep and we'll work around it. It's sort of like He's asking us, am I worthy or not? There's no middle. You think, well, God, you can have my thoughts, but I'm going to keep my tongue. You can have my week, but I'm going to keep Tuesday. You can have my year, but I'm going to have hunting season. Now, don't get me wrong on that when I say this. The concept of free time, as we define it, is foreign to the New Testament. Here's what I mean. Do we need rest and recreation? Yes. Is it wrong to hunt? Absolutely not. But there's a difference in the thought process that says... This is necessary as part of my fellowship with God to have refreshment and relaxation for my own sanity to be a sharper instrument to be used in the hand of God and that's why I need this. That's one thing. You see, a wrong way is to say, Lord, this is the time I've blocked off. Nothing's going to change it, not even you. One of those is a proper use of free time. One of those is idolatry. It's not that God doesn't want to give us those seasons. He does. But we better make sure we boldly take God with us where we go. And if we can't, we better be asking some questions about that. I mean, think, what are your greatest stewardships? Time? Talents? Treasures? What does the use of those really revolve around? Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Treasures isn't just shekels in your pocket. Time is a treasure. Our talents are treasure. Where they are, our heart is. 
Words of the Son of God, non-negotiable. Number four, it's a living sacrifice. Now really, that it almost seems like contradictory language, especially if you're familiar with the Old Testament. Li- living sacrifice? I mean, the life of the flesh was in the blood, I thought. The blood had to be spilled. The animal had to be slaughtered. It had to, it had to die in the altar. It had to be drained out. So the animal didn't go to that altar to live. It went to the altar to die. But you and I are asked to live on the altar. Energy, faculties, mind, talents, resources, time, devoted to His service in life on an ongoing basis. Jesus gave Himself a dying sacrifice so we could give ourselves back as a living one by choice. Number five, it's a holy sacrifice. Of course, the word holy means blameless, unique, uh, set apart. You remember what was done when the Passover lamb was chosen? The tenth day of the month, it was picked out of the flock. It was kept aside until the fourteenth day of the month. Uh, Part of that, presumably, was to make good and sure it didn't have any blemishes. When God sent the lamb uh, to take away our sins into the world, He was here for 33 years, roughly. Spent three and a half years in public ministry so all of us can be convinced that lamb also had no blemish. The point here is the attitude is one that invites godly scrutiny into our own heart. Willing to painfully examine ourselves and come to the light. Honestly ask yourself, when was the last time you were brutally honest before God? Where you actually know, you open the door and said, Lord, I want to know everything I need to know. If I'm not walking in the light, if I'm compromising, if there's some sin in my life, I want to know it and actually give time to search and listen. Perhaps you've done that in years past. Any of you ever done that and you're shocked at how far you've drifted? I have. Shows how valuable it is. You know, the requirements for an Old Testament sacrifice were pretty clear and basic. Nothing blind, nothing lame, nothing halt, because Jehovah deserved the best of what they possessed. Think about it. When you and I have the attitude, I'll serve God when, or I'll obey when, or I've paid my dues, it's like you're approaching that altar in the sacrifice area. It's full of leprous sores. Here, God, take that. Sorry, that's the best I'm going to give. Why is it when Almighty God is willing to give His best for us, our tendency is to bring less back to Him? It is scary in modern religion, by the way, this concept that God has to accept what we give Him. It is, it is blasphemous. So many... Religious entities today, it's like they look at God like the family dog and they're going to throw Him His little religious pork chop and He better be happy with it. How dare you treat the living God like that? That's why everything is called worship now. That's why everything is called ministry now. Because their mindset is, if I want to give it and I'm willing to give it, God had better accept it. No, 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 wait a minute. You want to give something, you better make sure God is willing to accept it. A holy sacrifice, it says, is acceptable unto God. What does that say about less than that? Unacceptable before God. Number six, it's a reasonable sacrifice. Now, I'm uh, really quite fascinated with the Holy Spirit's choice of words here. Reasonable. In fact, the Greek word is logikos. And you immediately recognize the English word that's transliterated from that, logical. He's saying it is your logical, rational thing to do. He says, what I'm telling you is in accordance with true brains. 
By the way, true Christianity, properly understood, is very much in accordance with reason. Christians are the most reasonable people in the universe because they insist on truth about heaven, hell, eternity, life, death, sin, God, Satan, self, and on and on. They don't just plug their ears and say, I'll deal with it when I die. They actually say, no, I want to know about these things. God says I'm a sinner. Hey, I must be. Keep telling me more. Here's what Paul's saying though. Think think about the rationale. If you have been created out of nothing, expressly for the glory of God, if He is sustaining all things at this present time, and you are rushing toward the day when you give an account of this short vapor called life, if He bled and died for your sins personally, and suffered all of hell because of His love for you, if He pursued you right into the abyss of iniquity and saved you like a brand plucked from the fire, if He possesses all wisdom and all authority, if He is the source of every good thing, every blessing, joy, all peace, all pleasure, all beauty, all life, if He has become man, leaving you a flawless example of what devotion to God looks like, if He really has your highest good in mind, if His commands and prohibitions are motivated by a burning heart of holy love, if He cannot forget even one simple act done for His sake, but must reward it, if one moment in heaven's glory and His presence will really swallow up the trials and tribulations of your entire life, and if His highest goal for you is to make you like Jesus Christ, what more logical, rational life could you live than one in subjection to Him? That's the gauntlet Paul's laying down. Conversely, what more irrational, ridiculous, misguided, wasted, pathetic existence could we possibly have than to living live according to our own dictates and desires? You want to talk about an illogical creature? A Christian who claims to have sound theology and a high view of God and lives like he doesn't exist. You talk about a contradiction. Well, that brings up the admonition in verse 2. And be not conformed to this world. Conformed, by the way, is not the same Greek word as Romans 8 when we're conformed to the image of Christ. The conformed here is talking about something transitory, changing, unstable. It's the same as 1 Peter 1.14. He says, As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance. And the warning Peter's given is, Conforming ourselves according to our lost condition that we used to have. It's very possible to do that over time. In other words, don't let external sinful pressure force you into thoughts and behaviors that are of the world. I mean, what's the goal of this satanically driven world system towards a Christian? To neutralize them. To sideline them somehow. Either some flagrant sin or total apathy or making them so much like the world that even the world mocks in the name of the name of Christ. But that is the goal of this world system towards you if you belong to Christ. By the way, if you don't belong to Christ, the goal of this world system is to keep you from Him. What is the world? John defines it fairly well, doesn't he? All that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. Words we've known for years, most of us. When was the last time that definition actually sunk into your soul with respect to your daily life to make some decisions that you need to make? Anything that inflames those God-hating passions... Anything that promotes us having the eternal world look very hazy. Anything that, that we make excuses for not doing what the Lord says or not serving Him. Those are warning signs that this influence is something not correct. Do any of those exist in our culture? They're all over the place. You know, if you're going to form some metal, I know of at least four, four ways that could be done. There's probably, who knows, there's probably more. 
But uh, one way you form metal is this slow, steady pounding and shaping. It depends on the type of metal and what you're doing with it, but you can actually, it can be malleable. You can beat on it and beat on it and beat on it. And every hammer blow is not going to do much. Just a tiny bit, just incrementally. And eventually it's going to form it into the shape that the one doing the pounding wants to form it into. Another way is what the blacksmith does. Heat it red hot, beat on it really hard, and temper it and form it into a certain shape. It can be melted down and poured into a mold. Or it can be actually explosion formed. They'll detonate underwater explosions on metal sheets and force them into these molds. That's exactly what this world system is trying to do to you. There's a steady pounding of filth everywhere. Sometimes the heat seems to increase. There's pounding some more. There's cataclysmic events. You pay much attention to the media, it's always doomsday. There's always something new to be scared of. The Antichrist is debatable whether he's alive. I wouldn't say he is or is not. I don't know. But the spirit of Antichrist is well at work conforming the world into a legion of neutralized robots who think and talk and act alike. Are you able to see that? Are you able to back up at society and see how it's being funneled into everybody thinking the same? The mystery of iniquity has been working for centuries, millennia. It's going to keep going that way. I think it's an interesting question to stop and think, why is it if you took a solid Christian from 75 years ago, you brought them into today, and let's say they followed the average Christian around for a week and watched what they did and said and watched, why is it that person would probably be shocked out of their wits? You see... The conforming is widespread. It's constant. The churches follow lockstep with that conforming of the world. And many of God's people follow right in line. Can I tell you something? If you're going to be close to God in this day and age, you're going to stick out somewhat. There's going to be times of loneliness. Not that you want that. I'm not talking about isolationism. But you'll find real close fellowship is not as common as you would like it to be. But look around us at what's happening. How do we avoid it? He says, be ye transformed. Now, transformed, totally different word. Metamorphomai, where we get metamorphosis. To change into another form. You picture a caterpillar. It's in a cocoon. It becomes a butterfly. It bears no resemblance to his former self. Obviously, that change is far beyond human ability. And salvation is the beginning of this. The metamorphosis of nature. Now, this this epistle is talking to Christian people. He's not telling you be saved. He's already dealt with that. He's talking about the sanctification, the growth process in the Christian life. Now, it's true. At salvation, your nature changes in a moment. But many of your old thought patterns, habits, responses need serious renovation at that point. I mean, the idea of renewing the mind, it's a renovation. It's God's remodel process in the field of human catastrophe. Don't be beat into this mold, he's saying, but instead be supernaturally transformed on an ongoing basis. Now, let's face it, the mechanisms behind that are not super complicated. They really are not. It's our part to separate as much as possible from evil influence. It's our part to be immersed in the Word of God and continued prayer. It's our part to hear. You know a lot of times in the Word of God what the word hear means? It means listening with the intent to obey. That means you open this book, here's your mindset. Lord, your Word is final. I'm going to do what you say, no matter what. I'm not testing your will to see if I'm going to obey it. I'm determining I'm going to obey it before I know what it is. Because you are God. That's the mindset that leads to this ongoing transformation. There's a determination to obey the least of His guidelines. And what's the result? That ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, I'm going to leave the description there out of it. 
Much could be said on that statement. But here's the point. When you are yielded as a living sacrifice on the altar in every known area, I'm not talking about 100% sanctification. I'm talking about every known area for right now. When you're not being conformed, but being transformed, you are able to prove the will of God on an ongoing basis. The word prove means investigate, ascertain. Sort of a detective term. You're able to identify it. And it's not primarily the product of spiritual feelings and impressions. Now, emotions can certainly be involved. Absolutely. But we've got to be real careful that determining the will of God comes through a sanctified reasoning process of mind that's filled with the precepts of God and separated from the world. I remember years ago, before I knew any of you, I was teaching teens for some years and it struck me how many young people I'd talked to through the years. And one of their, I mean, what's, what's one of the main questions? How do I know the will of God? It's a common, I mean, adults ask that question. It's a good question. It's not a one sentence answer, by the way. There's a lot to it, and a lot hinges on our own receptivity. It really does. There's no mechanism we can give anybody if they're not receptive. But one thing I found I like to ask people, though, Something's the will of God, they say. What is your spiritual reasoning process that brought you to that? I don't know how many people have asked that over the years. That's basically in keeping with what's said in this passage. Is this the basis of one or two proof texts? Is this the basis of a feeling or something that came? Or is this solid reasoning that demonstrates the mind of the Lord uh, by going through large sections of His Word based on a panorama of the Word of God? That's kind of the intent. Really, determining the will of God is not this mystical, super-spiritual, nebulous thing. Yes, God can impress things on us and those can come true, but primarily it's going to be through the mechanism of being separated from the world, willing to do His will, familiarity with the Scriptures, and the ability to reason through it. And that grows with experience. That grows with... Uh, most, of you, most of you know that. There, there's things you've faced in the last year. You instantly knew it was or wasn't the will of God. But you know, five years ago, you would have had to really chew on it, right? All of us have been there. That's evidence of growth. That's a good thing. Hopefully God will keep doing that with each of us. I just want to make a couple of basic applications on that, though. I find it fearful, the danger of deception on this note. All of us have heard somebody. I, I've heard some of the most outlandish things over the years. Some will come up and say, hey, God told me. And of course, they come up with some horrifically unscriptural thing. And you know full well God didn't tell them that because it contradicts the Scriptures, right? But all of us are prone. We may not be so bold to say God told me, but all of us are prone to miss the boat here. But you see, all of this is linked to the will and to the renewing of the mind to a separation from evil. If we are willingly holding back parts of our existence from God, allowing ourselves to be conformed to the world's thinking pattern, not allowing the Spirit of God to continually renew our mind and resolve to obey what He says, we will not see the will of God. Remember what Peter says, Second Peter? But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off. We may still see the major stuff, doesn't mean you're going to go become a drunkard, start smoking crack or whatever. But the precise leading becomes hazy. And think about this. All of our struggles in the Christian life, when we deliberately misstep somewhere, it has two sets of consequences, immediate and remote, all the time. Let's say you're going to go to Hawaii. You're going to leave from Seattle. You're one degree off in your course. A mile out is not going to matter that much. 2,000 miles out is going to matter a whole lot. We need not fear to the sense of being white-knuckled and panicking all the time. God delights to lead us. It's a tremendous dichotomy mentioned in the Psalms. My soul pursues hard after God, and my, thy right hand upholdeth me. Psalmist also said, He shall guide me with His counsel, and then bring me to glory. We've got to trust God's ability to lead more than our ability to hear. However, we can't discount our 
willingness to hear. So just a couple basic questions and we'll be done. What compartments of your existence do you know you're trying to hide? Or at least hold on to possession of? If those exist, why do they exist? I mean, stop and think about the rational process of it. God can't be trusted. I think he'll take away my fun. God doesn't delight to give good things. I know better than him. What kind of sacrifice, honestly, are you on the altar right now? Are you able to take part in things today that you know full well would have pierced your conscience to shreds a few years back? If that's the case, it's good to stop and ask why. Now, sometimes that can be Christian growth. I know for me, basketball is such an idol in my life. After college, I didn't touch one, I don't think, for 10 years. Couldn't do it. It's different today. But you and I know full well there's things where we engage in and we go, you know something? Back there, that really bugged me. What happened? Don't think that any one of us can't get off track, me included. None of us are immune to this. Any one of us, God's not asking for some super spiritual talent, Christian megastars. Listen, Christian work has been carried out primarily over the years by regular people. But He's asking for a willingness to relinquish off to Him. And that's a choice He's not going to force you to make. He's not going to beat it out of you. He's not going to threaten it out of you. He's leading you in the front with nail-scarred hand and He's saying, I want you closer now. Will you come? It doesn't have anything to do with salvation. It has to do with wanting Him more than anything else. Let's pray. Lord God, thank You for showing us such mercy. Thank You, Lord God, for your patience with us. I thank you, Lord, for each life in here that belongs to Christ and the unbelievable miracle that represents in every single case. I thank you for all the ways you moved and worked and convicted and shaped and blocked things and opened eyes and sent messengers and kept us from death and kept us from further excess of riot. Also, you could bring about your tremendous purpose of blessing us forever for reasons we don't even understand. What a marvel that the God of heaven would lower himself to redeem us and place his name on us. Father, help us to see Christ in fuller perspective as one who is worthy, the only one who's worthy to follow like that. Help us to be disciples of the Lamb by our own choice. In Jesus' name, amen.